1: If one looks back at the pronouncements of ancient Republicans like Cal Coolidge and Herbert Hoover, that government should certainly stay out of business. It is a sign of a different world that an administration with a Republican president is taking an action that is perhaps, if it can be measured, the largest government action since the New Deal. And it's not surprising that it involves an entity that traces its legacy right back to that era the Great Depression. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the multi-billion dollar owner of so many household mortgages in America, have been put under the conservatorship of the U.S. government. To call them mortgage giants is almost an understatement. They are multiples the size of any bank, and they are, indeed, the largest corporation in the world. And some experts have even estimated that they are the largest corporation of all time. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have always been odd sort of entities in our economy. They are private, but they also have always had a foundation in the public sector, and most importantly, a belief that if anything ever happened to them, the federal government would come to their rescue. It was a belief that never had to be tested before September 7th of this year. The origin of these agencies come from Roosevelt's New Deal, and the flurry of legislation initiated during his first term in office. The 1930s saw many homeowners losing their homes to foreclosure. When the immediate onset of the Great Depression, 29, 30, 31, the Hoover White House and the Republican and conservative Democrat-dominated Congress saw a little ability or reason to act. Mortgages were private contracts between citizens and banks doing business. And if citizens could no longer pay, banks were foreclosing on the House. There was no role for government to get involved in a private contract. Hoover felt he had done enough just allowing banks to have new sources of credit arranged through various Reconstruction finance programs. It was not until Franklin Roosevelt became president with huge majorities in Congress, congressmen who had been elected as new dealers to help people during this time. At the Homeowners' Refinancing Act of 1933 was passed, which created the Homeowners' Loan Corporation, HOLC. And there are parts of the New Deal that are well-known. We remember perhaps the Blue Eagle, certainly the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, and, of course, the most famous program and most lasting, Social Security. But not all the New Deal programs were made to last. Not all of them were intended to create a permanent government bureaucracy. The New Deal did a lot more in mitigating circumstances than in actually rebuilding the economy. And the Home Refinancing Program of HOLC was one of the more successful, far-reaching, if not famous programs. Through its work, it granted long-term mortgages to over a million people, Facing the loss of their homes. There's a point to be made here. Very often you'll hear the question raised Did the New Deal end the Great Depression? Or was it World War II? And there's many economists that debate this question. And uh, to me, just to take the question at its face, there is some evidence that in the years of 1934 and 1935, if you look at unemployment, if you look at uh, GNP, these numbers had gotten better. And so the New Deal programs did help to increase economic activity. It did not bring things back to the boom years of the late 20s. But that, to me, is not really the question. The New Deal programs were never intended to create a boom in the economy just from the programs themselves. They were intended to get things started and to mitigate the impact of of the economic disaster on people. And in that way, they were spectacularly successful by any measure. This is one of the programs that is really evidence of that. It's a government program that succeeded in an area that it's hard to imagine the private sector would have been able to handle. Banks at the time were lending usually very short-term mortgages. There was nothing like the 20- the 30-year mortgages that you see today. It just simply didn't exist. Banks couldn't wait that long to get their money back. So, the HOLC could do a little bit longer-term loans, 10, 15, 20 years. It was a temporary measure. The HOLC stopped lending around 1935, once the capital that it had through the legislation had been spent. It could only be used on non-farm houses worth less than 20000 The agency also assisted private companies, mortgage lenders, to refinance loans that they were having problems with and to... Uh, help them with providing cash. This is one of those programs that would be criticized from the right and from the left in that uh, many on the left thought that this program was too favorable to businesses. It allowed them to write off mortgages that had been delinquent and get the amount of the mortgage to them in uh, government bonds. Now, eventually, in the later decades of the 1930s, the HLC had these mortgages and if they weren't receiving payment from customers, they had to foreclose just like any other uh, government agency. And there was some criticism of uh, just like any other business. And there was some criticism of that, but that was the way the business was structured. And unlike so many government programs that you hear about belittled, the HLC, when it ended its operations, it actually re- uh, returned to small profit. But it was temporary. And as so is common with the bold experiment or series of experiments that we now collectively looking backward term as a new deal. There were so many agencies and ideas operating at once that they often intersected. Before the HLC ended, it was assumed that private lenders would take over. We've given a little jump start to the mortgage market, We've helped out we've helped out with some of the particularly bad loans, and now hopefully private entities will take over. And the Federal Housing Act of 1934 provided for the corporation of a private national mortgage association or several associations across regions to create a national secondary mortgage market. Now, these would be regional associations, all of private banks, that would buy up mortgages from other banks, allowing the smaller banks to lend more than they could just from the deposits they had. The problem was that four years later, by 1938, no private associations had formed. The businesses were simply too scared to get into the secondary mortgage market. And so through the Federal Housing Administration, they chartered one association, almost a trial association called the National Mortgage Association of Washington that would buy and sell mortgages. And although it was called a mortgage association, it was essentially instituted by the government. A few months later, wanting to be seen more as a national agency rather than a regional one in the D.C. area, it changed its name to the Federal National Mortgage Association, FNMA. That little acronym, with some creativity, nicely becomes Fannie Mae. And it's been known as that since the late 30s. The biggest service that Fannie Mae offered throughout its history... Is a secondary mortgage market, as we talked about. The biggest problem for investors in any product is the same that you might have. If you have to look at it at an individual level, do you want to put your money in a CD? Do you want to buy a stock? Can I get my money out if I need to? Is there going to be risk? Can be mortgages involve a homeowner making payments? And what if they don't make those payments? And what if I do happen to need money for something else? How can I get out of this? And if it's a mortgage that you have with some person, you can't easily get out of it unless you can happen to sell that mortgage to someone else. So this is a real problem for small, your average bank on the street, or even a small uh, regional bank that uh, just doesn't have sufficient assets to A, cover the risk, and B, buy enough mortgages to make uh, mortgages more available. So by creating pools of mortgages, Fannie Mae could uh, increase liquidity and lower the risk for the banks that were uh, selling mortgages out there. It also created, for the first time in history, a national mortgage market. So a banker in New York could buy mortgages in Florida or New Mexico or California. And this really helped those regions of the country, especially in the West, that were very capital poor and just didn't have sufficient banks to create enough mortgages. If they could go to New York money... Uh, There were new sources of money
0: uh, for lending in the West. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Between 1938 and 1948, Fannie Mae bought 66,947 mortgages. All of these mortgages were insured by the Federal Housing Authority. In 1949, with so many veterans returning home and, and buying houses, uh, Fannie Mae also was allowed to buy and sell loans guaranteed by the Veterans Administration. In the early 50s, under the Eisenhower administration, uh, there were some critics starting to develop that this, this Fannie Mae entity was too large and it, and it was too big of a government program. So Congress responded by making the first tweak of the Fannie Mae uh, program and turned Fannie Mae into what was then called a mixed ownership corporation, partially government, partially private. How it worked is Treasury of the United States is the one issuing the stock, but non-voting stock was issued to banks who could become members of Fannie Mae. And they had to buy the stock. In order to sell mortgages to Fannie Mae. So this opened Fannie Mae and uh, beyond just selling uh, FHA and VA mortgages. In 1966 there was a bit of a mortgage crisis where some of the lenders uh, didn't have the resources to make mortgages. So Fannie Mae began in 1966 buying up a lot of private mortgages. The trouble is that the cost of borrowing enough money to purchase the mortgages increased the debt load that Fannie Mae had, and it also reduced the profits And now that it was a corporation. Lyndon Johnson, struggling with debt from the Vietnam War and not wanting to have a government-owned corporation that wasn't necessarily earning money on the federal budget, uh, in 1968, through the Housing and Urban Development Act passed through Congress, split up Fannie Mae into two now completely private corporations. Fannie Mae and Ginny Mae. Ginnie Mae would handle the FHA and VA mortgages and Fannie Mae was simply a secondary mortgage company that could buy any mortgage issued by a bank. Freddie Mac was also created in 1968 so that it would not be a monopoly. There would be at least one competitor in the market and that's why today you have Freddie, Mae, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and often Freddie Mac will take the larger loans. Uh, than, than Fannie Mae. A problem occurred with this in 1979 when interest rates began to rise. And because Fannie Mae borrows money, where do they get the money from? Often it's from foreign entities who are looking for a solid investment in the American home market. It's a great investment most of the time. Uh, so that investment would occur through Fannie Mae with its government backing. But money now became more expensive in the late 70s and early 80s. In the early 80s, Fannie Mae began experimenting with a program in order to to reduce some of the interest rate risk. And one of them was to buy arms so that the homeowner would take the risk. And that made arms, since Fannie Mae was buying them, that made arms more popular with banks. And they also began selling mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities are pools of lots and lots and lots of mortgages it is very likely that if you have a mortgage on your house you are one little nth of a mortgage-backed security the good thing about these securities is that they can be bought and sold very easily just like a stock and so if banks need to get some cash they can sell some of these securities the um the other advantage is because they're collected into these pools, the risk of any one homeowner defaulting is less and less. If one homeowner defaults, it's not much risk to you. By 1985, Fannie Mae became profitable again. And by 1990, Fannie Mae had a total income of $1.9 billion. This led to some questions from other banks as to whether this was too big of an entity and you had Wells Fargo, for instance, which is also in the secondary mortgage market buying up loans Uh, saying uh, it's not a level playing field. In 2007, the subprime mortgage crisis began. An increasing number of borrowers, often with poor credit, were defaulting on mortgages, and it caused a decline in the interest in these mortgage-backed securities, especially those that weren't backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so we're in the situation we are in today. Uh, The mortgage-backed security products that are based on subprime loans are declining. Home prices are declining as there's a large group of foreclosures on the market, and it's adding to the inventory of homes. There's stricter lending standards, which are making it more difficult for people to borrow money. And so demand for homes is down. Anytime there's a depreciation in home prices, there's a loss in profit for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have tumbled 90% from where they were a year ago. So in July of 2008, the uh, first action of the Bush administration was just a statement to reiterate the view that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac play a central role in the U.S. housing finance system, sort of a psychological attempt to back up investor confidence. Then in uh, in August, the Treasury Department took steps to boost confidence by granting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac access to Federal Reserve low-interest loans and removing the prohibition of the Treasury Department from buying Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac stock. These attempts did not have the impact on incu- uh, investor confidence that was intended. So on September 7, 2008, the Federal Housing Finance Agency announced that uh, the FHFA had placed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac under the conservative ship of the FHFA. According to reports, there's no plan to liquidate the company, and it looks like they will be dismissing the CEOs, the board of directors, electing a new board of directors, and perhaps issuing common stock, new round of stock, to the federal government. This will reduce the value of anyone who's holding Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae stock now. You know, one of the nice things about being the federal government is you can do almost anything you want. So if they pass a law that says they can borrow the money to take over Freddie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, then they can do it. And in uh, the end of July, a law was passed uh, increasing the national debt ceiling $800 billion to a total of $10 trillion in order to anticipate the need for the Treasury Department to make this takeover. So is this conservative ship a late-term Bush administration new deal? It's a big action, probably though unavoidable by any standard and by any administration, even the most conservative one, one could imagine a past president, if faced with this type of entity controlling so much of such an important market, uh, it would be hard to imagine them not taking the same action. As we've seen recently with the Lehman Brothers situation, the Bush administration is by no means going to back up Wall Street entirely. And what is very different from this administration's actions as to the New Deal is the lack of any Wall Street bashing. FDR and the Democrats put Wall Street on trial with congressional investigations where several of the presidents of the large firms were called up to talk and uh, allegations were made. And, of course, the establishment of the SEC, led by the first SEC chairman, Joseph Kennedy, the father of the future president. In this Bush administration, of course, we don't see the blame. We just seem to see some of the actions. uh, It's almost assumed that government must have a role. And the criticism, interestingly enough, is not coming from conservatives or the sort of Liberty League, at least not so much. But it's coming to some extent from some liberals who are saying, who are questioning whether someone shouldn't be paying for this other than taxpayers. That's not entirely surprising given this one difference between 2008 and the 1930s. Cost of the federal government now is borne much higher by lower and middle class taxpayers than it was in the 1930s when only the wealthiest Americans paid income tax at all. And so while a program might seem great when it's someone else's money, now that uh, many others are bearing the costs, it's not surprising that there'll be some questions as to how much this has cost, why we're doing it and what kind of packages we're giving to the executives who had not performed well in their jobs. But there won't be too many questions for two reasons. One is that this action is uh, defendable and necessary if the mortgage business is allowed to uh, decline, then the basic unit of the American economy, home ownership, uh, would be threatened, and uh, millions of Americans would be affected. And the second reason is that it's an election season, and an election year is often the best time for anyone who's not a candidate to take an action, as there'll be less scrutiny. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. The website is My History Can Beat Up You can post comments there, suggest new episodes. This episode came as the result of a suggestion from Stuart. Thanks a lot. Very good timing because I am working on a podcast on the Depression what the Depression was like for people in America. We see old black and white photographs, but what was it really like? And uh, what were the effects on the politics? In America of the Great Depression. Uh, a lot of research going to that, so that'll there'll probably be a few podcasts before that one gets uploaded. On the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics.com website, available is History Picks the President 2008. That's my audiobook. It sells for eight ninety five. dollars uh, It's a look at some of the factors that people use to judge elections. It is a tool available for you to understand the 2008 election better. We do make a prediction in the uh, book, but I like to say more important than the, the actual uh, destination is the journey getting there, and we look at all sorts of historical uh, scenarios. My history can beat up yourpolitics.com.
0: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own.